difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with Scott Tobias, Tasha Robinson, and Genevieve Kosky. Last week, we discussed the American president. This week, we're returning again to the world of American politics via long shot. It's a familiar film in several respects. For starters, it plays like a closer than usual pairing for us as a romantic comedy in which a politician, played here by Shirley Saron, struggles to hold on to her ideals while also falling in love with the character who embodies those ideals. Here, an out-of-work left-wing journalist played by Seth Rogen. It's familiar in other ways as well. Since Stocked Up, Seth Rogen has come to embody a strand of contemporary comedy featuring underachieving, or at least out of step, protagonists in films that mix often moving insights about growing up with some unapologetically broad comedy. All that's in evidence here in this unfailingly pleasant and sneakily sophisticated film directed by Jonathan Levine from a script by Dan Sterling and Liz Hanna. Rogen plays Fred Flarsky, a crusading New York alt-weekly reporter who, early in the film, loses his job due to the precarious state of 21st century journalism. Who can imagine such a thing happening? <laughs> Attending a party, by chance, he reconnects with Charlotte Field, his long-ago babysitter who's since become the Secretary of State, serving under the fatuous actor-turned-politician President Chambers, played by Bob Odenkirk. When Chambers tells Field he has no plans to run for a second term, she decides to run herself, bringing in Flarsky as a writer. He's also there, even if she doesn't realize it at first, to keep her honest as she pursues an ambitious environmental agenda that powerful figures would love to compromise. Together, they travel the globe and, under stressful circumstances, start a romantic relationship that may not be able to stand up to the heat of a presidential race or the steps Field will have to take to get elected. We'll talk it over after the break. Is the relationship exactly? I used to babysit for him. You babysat for him? Wow, time has not been kind. I need some writers to punch up my speeches. Fred's writing is really good, and he knows me. Oh, I feel so scared. In order to write better for you, I should kind of get to know you better if you have a minute. I actually have seven. Seven minutes in heaven. What is your favorite book as a kid? The Velveteen Rabbit. Favorite song? Must have been Love by Roxette. Most embarrassing moment. I don't embarrass that easily. I don't either, really. What's your favorite sexual position? Normal? Front-facing normal? <laughs> what kind of question That's is that? That's all it took. Look at you. What's your favorite sexual position? Don't be gross, Frank. Do you like date? I mean, who wants to follow me around the world and hope I have five minutes to be affectionate? Yeah. We did almost just die. We actually did almost die. We need to move you. Thank you, Agent M. It's Pretty Woman, but she's Richard Gere and you're Julia Roberts. Honestly, this has been the best few weeks of my entire life. We asked a thousand constituents how they would feel if Kate Middleton. I see where you're going with this. We're to start dating Danny DeVito. Pretty negative reaction. All right. Everybody, what did you think of this film? I thought it was, uh, I liked it. I thought it was charming. How about everybody else? I liked it too, though much more as a romantic comedy than as a, a political film, for sure, for me. I just, uh, you know, I mean, the film is working two fantasies at once in the, the fantasy in which 
Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron are a plausible romantic couple works for me a lot more than than anything that tries to get accomplished politically uh, in the movie. So that's kind of where things kind of ended up dividing for me. But I think essentially the heart of the film is really just about chemistry and dialogue between these two actors who are quite capable and quite good together. And that was kind of where I uh, kind of grooved on the movie. Part of the thing I I worry about going into this movie, the movie ended up doing, which is, it felt like a movie from four years ago or three years ago. I mean, the, the politics, I mean, not to get too political here, guys, but but I, I feel like the, the Trump administration has changed everything so profoundly that you know even this fairly cartoonish depiction of, of American politics is so far removed from what they've become in the last few years. Uh, I'd love to live in a world where you know someone as silly as, as Bob Odenkirk's character is the president. He kind of is, though. I mean, he's, isn't it? I mean, is it sort of a stealthy Trump thing to yeah, have to have kind of a, I, it, kind of an well, idiot TV guy? I mean, I, d- I don't think I'd love to live in the world in which that character is president. I would love to live in a world in which that character decides to step down because it's <laughs> sure. just not working for him. I think that is maybe the <laughs> that's uh, a good one. Uh, we also don't really fantasy. see any anything meaningful about like the world that elected him or the world that he's created. I mean, we don't really know much about his, his policies. We don't really know much about his legislation. We what don't... is all right there in the TV show where he played the president. <laughs> you haven't seen that? <laughs> uh, we, we, we just, we don't have to see the fallout of an idiot president in this world, which is also a very nice fantasy that I would <laughs> enjoy very, yeah. very much. I mean, I think where this movie is realistic about politics is, you know, in the specter that hovers over it of the 2016 election and of Hillary Clinton's campaign. Hillary Clinton as a candidate is obviously very different than Charlotte Field as, as a character, but in terms of someone striving to be the first female president and the trials and tribulations that come with that in terms of perception and the compromises that need to be made. I think it's playing in the realm of politics as culture more than politics as policy. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes some pretty astute observations there uh, with regards to gender and what Charlotte Field has to do to be taken seriously and what it means for her to pursue this relationship in the context of a historical campaign. I kind of liked the framing of the relationship. I liked how much it acknowledges the sort of the disparity between them, the complications of navigating politics as a woman, the work, the level of work she puts in, the crazy life that she leads, and just like all of the the weighty and frustrating compromises of politics that have nothing to do with actual policy. That said, Charlie's Theron and Seth Rogen. I mean, really? Oh, you sound like June Diane Raphael right there. Her, hey, her that's, that is a compliment that I will take. I will even take sounding like her character here, which is, uh, you know, she's a, she's a stiff killjoy, but she's a stiff kill, killjoy who's right and who wants to see her boss get elected because she believes in her boss. Mostly it's just, if this movie existed in a vacuum, it would be fine. It would be about uh, like the unlikelihood of this couple, and it would be about how sometimes opposites attract, and it would be about how her the st- like stiffness and formality and humorless of her life is livened up by this dude. 
It's just that cinema has such a long history of like much older dudes with much younger women and pretty schlubby dudes with not like just knockout gorgeous women. I'm pretty she, sure Shirley's Theron is older than Seth Rogen. She, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that here. I'm just saying it's like a longstanding tradition. Yeah. And within that context, and even within the context of Seth Rogen's own career, there's just this feeling of like, really though? I mean... <laughs> I see. I think. I think. I think the film is lampshading that, though, in the scene of June Diane Raphael's character showing her the pic- the, the pictures uh, and saying like, "What uh, Jennifer y- Lawrence what? and a potato exactly. and a windbreaker." Exactly. Like, like I think this film is specifically commenting on that trope and the idea that this pairing falls into that trope and that people don't like that. You know. Okay. So here's the thing about that. Uh, I appreciate the lampshading. I appreciate the potato joke. I laugh pretty hard at the potato joke. I laugh pretty hard at this movie in general. It's just that I find his character so repulsive throughout most of the film in so many ways that have nothing to do with his physicality. Uh, when we get we get those glimpses of his writing and his, we're, we're told over and over that his writing is brilliant <laughs> and inspired and literally one of the head, headlines is Exxon sucks. Uh, and another one is uh, Company... No, it's it's like the two-party system can eat a dick. Wait, are two you telling dicks, me actually. that this romantic comedy has a simplistic view of the media? Uh, what I'm saying is everything about him is, it, it just reminds me so much of Knocked Up. Everything about him is portrayed as like immature and like out of control and not, he's just, he's not a considered person and he's not a terribly considerate person and he's not a very sophisticated person and he's doesn't seem like a particularly smart person in a lot of ways. So we're told over and over that he has all of these qualities that make him perfect for her. But what we're actually presented with is like a stoner. Here's the thing. Here's here's maybe where we can go go specific with it. He is so angry about his workplace being bought up by conglomerate that's going to ruin it that he quits his job on principle good for him. He has an opportunity to confront the person who is responsible for that and say something to his face. And instead, he just sort of like steams and makes faces and falls down some stairs. Like, what about that is admirable or enviable or says anything remotely complimentary about that character? Well, I think that character exhibits growth over the course of the film, and that is a starting point for the character. So it's a a pretty low moment for him at at that I mean, when the, when the film opens to have to lose his job and be kind of on the, the bottom rung and be walking around in the same <laughs> teal uh, windbreaker and uh, <laughs> cargo pants. You know, I mean, I think it just, it's the same deal with Knocked Up as it is with Longshot here, which is which is just this faith that they're going to make it work, like, that there's going to be enough chemistry that's, that develops between them to make this awkward pairing make sense. And I think to me, where it kind of clicks is this, Rogan is, in this film, is this, you know, unpretentious guy who she feels comfortable with and she's not around people she feels comfortable with very often he also of course reminds her of her idealistic youth and who she was before and and uh you know there's a a sense of of home and and uh and um connectedness i guess to the the true real person who who started this journey through this character and and um uh, the, the film hits that hard enough to where i think it works and also i also think 
Charlie's Rogan's good in this film. I think Charlie's Throne is great in this movie. Yeah, agreed. I agree. You know, and, and yeah. she is. And I'm never. You know, I mean, she's some an actress who's really gotten. I just. I think she's just gotten better and better and better as the years have gone on. But to me, this performance reminds me uh, well of another film that Tasha hates, but uh, Meryl Streep in Defending Your Life, because Meryl Streep in Defending Your Life was was like we'd never seen her before. She's just she's just who she is. She's just completely comfortable and relaxed and not playing a character, just being in the moment. And uh, Theron has that kind of presence here, I think. Meryl Streep is great in Defending Your Life. I just want to establish okay. that. It's the structure of that film and, honestly, Albert Brooke's performance that, that runs it for me. I can't. Uh, we're, not, we're, <laughs> we're done with that I know discussion. we're not going to fight about it. it. I just want it on the record that I have no problem with Meryl Streep okay. in that movie or otherwise. Okay, good. But you, yeah, you know I, I think Charlie Theron is well cast as a woman who can do anything. Because <laughs> sort of like that's kind of what her career has been of late. I mean, this is a year after Atomic Blonde, a couple years. I mean, a few years after Young Adult. But I mean, the range on this actress is, is pretty, pretty remarkable. And she's just so, you know, I buy that relationship because she seems so into it, you know, and that that to me is what made that work. Yeah, agreed. Like, <laughs> I mean, he's he's bringing out something in her that makes her happy, as opposed to a film like Knocked Up and the relationship there, where what the Seth Rogen character is bringing out in the Katherine Heigl character is not good. You know, like he, he is a he is an obstacle to her happiness, and here he facilitates a happiness that she hasn't been able to feel in a long time because he is so outside of her everyday experience as a as a politician as a as a Wonder Woman. You know, but is it good for her to have a an enabling friend who enables her to like get cranked on Molly, like when when <laughs> she's on duty what? as what? the Secretary of State, and has, has yeah. Okay, all right. We we need to talk about that that scene because <laughs> it's uh it's 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 interesting. I don't have a problem with it as a scene in a movie like this. Obviously, it's not something you want to happen in real life, but I think as a fantasy both the idea of this character is never going to be able to loosen up no matter what, no, no matter how many times she's told to just like forget about work to do that. Like it's never going to happen. So the only way for that to happen is through to be chemically altered for her to smoke a Molly. <laughs> right. To smoke a Molly. And I just like, I, I thought that scene was fun. Like I thought her performance in that, in that moment, like when they're out in Paris and just having a good time, that's fun. The following scene where she negotiates a hostage crisis while still rolling is very funny and very like in the realm of like this strain of, of comedy, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's completely asinine. Like it's stupid, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but again, Shirley Theron's performance in that, like up with her, just like huddled up in the corner and like peeking over the table <laughs> and you know being very paranoid and tr- but trying to remain collected. I think I thought it was very funny for as obviously outlandish as it was. You know, uh, speaking of outlandish, one of the scenes, I I find myself laughing at the weirdest moments during this film. Not weird in the sense that it wasn't where the movie intended for me to laugh, but there's a lot of very crude humor in this movie that often in a Seth Rogen film in particular, like the Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg oeuvre, uh, has a tendency to to go for shock value, mm-hmm. and it works for me about fifty percent of the yeah. time. And it's it's a really random hit or miss. Whether it's like, oh my god, <laughs> this is the end has a, a fifty foot story uh, lava monster with a huge swinging dong that's yeah. hilarious, or oh, you're 
going there and you expect me to be shocked okay but uh, the you're jizzing on your face <laughs> oh god yeah god uh, the extremity i didn't i didn't like the visual i didn't no. want that in my head but the extremity of it is is pretty funny and so is the sex scene where charlie's theron tells him you know smack my ass and, and choke me a little i liked the specificity of not the sexual instruction but the specificity of her having like out there desires like it's it's indicative of how this movie sometimes goes like pretty far out away from the mainstream totally comfortably for comedy and they, they both really pull it off i actually really enjoyed seth rogan in that moment just being like this does not do it for me at all but i, I want to be good giving in game <laughs> i yeah i i think actually the i believe there's two sex scenes in the movie and i think both of them are actually pretty funny because the first one is like the the, the, the five second uh, <laughs> you know they both climax by saying oh boy <laughs> <laughs> like that's 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 really good and apparently short because Shirley's Theron just didn't feel like doing a long scene that day oh really <laughs> yeah but um yeah no I think both of the sex scenes are handled in very funny if not particularly sexy ways and in a movie like this I'm okay with that like I don't need either of these characters to be sexy or to have a sexy moment for this relationship to feel true to me I get more from their relationship and their back and forth, you know, than I do in any sort of physical chemistry between them. Can we talk about the O'Shea Jackson factor? Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, that stuff is just, I mean, he's funny. I think he's a good, he's a funny actor. I like O'Shea whole, Jackson a the lot. Bit, the bit where he turns out to be a Republican, yeah. is that unreal? Yeah. It's another thing that felt to me like another pre-Trump thing where, where it's like, we should listen to this guy's point of view where it's like, no, yeah. I don't think you ever say that. Both sides is not really. Yeah a good thing in 2019 if it ever was i want to hold on to that entire thing to talk about in connections which i think we're going to get to in a minute and mostly just say o'shea jackson is is terrific i mean yeah. he's yeah. really charismatic in this i loved him in ingrid goes west he's just he's turning into one of those character actors who's just like a boon to any movie that he's in mm -hmm. but he's he's a magical black character like he's a, an incredibly awful trope who only exists in this movie to stand around and boost his white buddy and then like he you know he busts his chops a little when he needs to but we don't even know what he does like he's he apparently launched his own incredibly successful company which he like rules over like a a, a very benevolent god we have no idea what he does. We have no idea who he is. He has no goals except to make Seth Rogen's character smarter and happier. That's true. Though, though I was, my feeling always about supporting characters is that we don't. We only need to know what we need to know. You know, I mean, I don't think I don't think understanding more about what his specific business is is really going to give film any kind of legs or no but it's just it's indicative it, yeah, there no, are you, checklists you're right about the, out there I mean, I'm, I'm for the stereotype I'm and that's a the, huge yeah, aspect yeah, yeah. of it no i agree that is a uh, super problematic character in a lot of ways uh, though the performance is terrific uh real quick before we move on while we're still on the subject of supporting characters who recognized andy circus while they were watching this movie <laughs> nope not me, not me. <laughs> although halfway through the movie i did go <gasps> and leaned over to my husband and said He's Steve Bannon. That's why he looks so ridiculous and mm. so specific uh, and so weird with the the big schnoz and like the limp gray hair parted in the he's front. He's supposed to be a I, Rupert Murdoch. I assumed type. Murdoch, but uh, I mean, but I think I mean, they the both, character is, yeah. is a Murdoch character that maybe he's playing as Bannon. He's a very Murdoch character, but I think the appearance is based on Bannon. 
Uh, but no, I did not recognize him during the film. I kept being distracted again by how specific he looked yeah. until the Steve Bannon penny dropped and then I was more comfortable with the movie. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole lot to talk about here politically. I don't want uh, yeah, you haven't gotten to speak a whole lot, Keith. I don't know if we're, you're holding back on something or if I can just nope, keep moving. I'm fine. Okay, you guys are doing so great. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, you don't need so, me. So I think there's a, there's a lot here to talk about politically too, and I kind of wanted to circle back a little bit to what Genevieve was saying about gender because I think that's kind of that's relevant now. I mean, you know, there, there are some aspects of the film that are three years ago. I mean, this this whole environmental agreement that she's trying to arrange has has that Paris Agreement feel to it? Let's get all the let's get all the nations of the world. Oh, you mean on. it's not four fifty five from the American president? It's a twenty percent reduction in something. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd be just trying to get together all of these players on board with this one big sweeping plan that's going to have a positive effect on the environment. It feels that feels like something that's. I mean, that agreement has been ripped up by at least uh, the uh, our current American president has has um, trashed that whole deal. Um, but I think in contrast to what we've seen Trump be able to get away with as a, as a boorish idiot, you know, the womanizing sexual predator, you know, president, we can con- contrast that quite easily with what Charlize Theron has to go through and all these narrow, there's a much, you know, the more delicate dance that she has to do in order to be a plausible candidate. And even then, who knows? And I mean, we're and we're seeing that right now. We're seeing that right now in the field of in, in the women who are up for, you know, the Democratic nomination for president and what they're they're yeah. having to get that same sexism is is really kind of rearing its head. And so, in that respect, you know, lo- long shot is is right right there with us. Yeah, I like the Kudrow scene uh, as, <laughs> as the yep. kind of image consultant or whatever, and, and the idea that that her her wave was not testing well that she needed to work on her wave. And, it's a bad and, wave. And, uh, it's uh, really bad. Yeah, wave. all that all that stuff was good and, and it resonant in the ways that you were talking about, Scott. The joke about like we've we've tested your wave. You need to fix your wave. Parallel. Uh, the Canadian Prime Minister played by Alexander I wanted to bring him up. Yeah, uh, and the the way they focus tested his laugh and decided it didn't work and gave him a new laugh and we get to hear the old one and it's pretty bad. <laughs> and uh, my my husband again was like, I, I I found that charming. I think it's sad that he had to cover that up. But I'm like, yeah, politically though, it's it's a yeah. mess. I mean, both of them have to contend with like they're just aspects of themselves that they have to get rid of because they don't test well but that whole lisa kudrow scene with the uh um yeah we don't really drill down into policy because we found that people don't care like that is <laughs> is throwing a warm cuddly funny uh like laugh moment gloss over a very real very yeah, sad yeah. truth and i like i loved that scene yeah. Um, real quick before we move on to connections, I'm glad you brought up Alexander Skarsgård's character, the Canadian Prime Minister, because I, I briefly want to discuss him in relation to the idea of Seth Rogen as a romantic lead. And I think it's very clever how this movie positions this extremely handsome, classically you know desirable man as an option for her, someone who who understands what she is going through in terms of perception and politics and all that and just makes him such a repulsive choice. Like, I mean, that character is such a drip and like even, even just looks wise. Like, I'm like, was I wrong? Is Alexander Skarsgård like not an attractive human being? But, but it's just, it's a, I think it's a very smart characterization in terms of underlining what she finds attractive about Fred 
who is physically is very different from this, uh, you know, approved option for her. I mean, Canadian Prime Minister never takes his shirt off, which would have really changed the dynamic quite a lot, I think. I'm trying to think who the character of a hot Canadian Prime Minister could be based on. It just it's, it's eluding me. Yeah, he's it's weird. He's like charismatic and young and uh, the press is really obsessed with him. So and uh, really obsessed with his like his romantic uh, options. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Canadian yeah. listeners, let us know if we're, if we're missing. I think, I think I think I think I think it's Rob Ford, the late Rob Ford. <laughs> Yeah, you never know. With that, let's wrap up this discussion. We'll be right back after the break to talk about the connections between Longshot and the American president. But how does that work with you? Do you like, do you like date? Uh, yeah, I date. Generally, you know, with people who have similar lifestyles to me, people who travel a lot. It's hard to keep those things alive. I'm, I mean, who wants to follow me around the world and hope I have five minutes to be affectionate? Yeah. And honestly, guys don't really want to date women who are more powerful than them. They think they do, but it's a Dick Shriveler. Oof. Mm-hmm. Dick Shriveler is my favorite Batman villain, though, so. You gonna ask why I'm still single? No, I get it. <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, it adds up. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about the things they have in common. Well, I think we already talking about politics and perception with Longshot and how important polling and image plays in, 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 um, in Charlotte Field's candidacy. Uh, that's a really obvious connection to the American president, which is very poll focused. Yeah, too much in both of these. I mean, do are politicians that poll obsessed oh, I think they yes are. And, and that kind of they really drill into those numbers I mean, and, and let their let I, the, I can't i can't say if politicians are themselves i suspect they are because it feels like the media is very obsessed with polls yeah. you know especially in an election season which you know re- remember andrew shepherd is two years into his presidency so he's starting to to run for president again you know and the, the implications that these numbers won't matter in two years once he's been elected again but they matter now yeah. the same way that they matter now to charlotte who is not even for most of this movie outwardly running for president you know she's uh, laying the groundwork i guess but i think polling is very very important to both of these characters but based on where they are in their political careers at the moment the, the film catches up with them maybe not to them as human beings or lifelong politicians but there's also this demand though in both films that the politician characters the heroes have to defy that at some point have to do what is what the right thing is and not what the politically expedient thing is yeah uh, to do and, and and that's kind of especially in long shot where it loses me uh, i think that the film is really becomes kind of a mess politically particularly at the end which is just complete the, the uh, is totally, yes yeah <laughs> um but they all kind of embrace this fantasy that I think a lot of us tend to carry uh, uh, that politicians will suddenly stop acting like politicians and make mm-hmm. choices that poli- mm-hmm. and, and, you know and do things that politicians you know I mean there's a reason why politicians make the decisions they make because if they don't if they make the other decision there are huge consequences to that and to deny those consequences to think that that a good speech 
is going to allow them to be able to deliver on their ideals while remaining popular and electable. It's a it's a very annoying cake and eat it too kind of <laughs> kind of thing. Well, once again, these movies are both fantasies. They're both feel totally. good fantasy movies, um, which you know doesn't excuse uh, the complete lack of realism, but means you got to acknowledge it. It's like you know what what did you want? Did you want this to end? There were several points where I thought Longshot was out on a limb enough. Uh, that I was expecting some misstep to just completely end her political career and then for the the moral to be, you know, she's much happier as a landscaper where she gets to be out in nature or whatever that was. <laughs> I was braced for that ending and uh, would have been pretty annoyed by it. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm fine with the ridiculous-ass fantasy of bad. everything going perfectly right and being in the end. She's the uh, the ending where, where we have to go all the way into the future and see that she's president is the equivalent of if the American president had <laughs> yeah, yeah. just had the wedding on the White House lawn. <laughs> that said, I'm okay with it uh, only for the phrase first mister, which I like a lot. <laughs> and the Todd McFarlane image, which was pretty funny. Yeah, the Todd McFarlane uh, painting was oh, yeah. uh, pretty extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like that, that little button at the end was obviously ridiculous, but there was a lot in it that I liked, um, which I think probably applies to uh, much of the fantasy that is at work in both of these films. I think American President has a dignity to it that sometimes works a little against it, and mm. Longshot has a complete lack of dignity <laughs> that actually works pretty well in its favor. Uh, because things like that, that Todd McFarlane image, it's so ridiculous and over the top that it kind of reminds you... Every now and then, Longshot would veer into like a serious issue or a serious scene. Charlize Theron would play a serious moment. And I would think, I just don't buy her being this character in a film where Seth Rogen is being that character. And then the film would pull something redonkulous out of its ass. And I'd go, oh, that's right. This is a silly comedy. It's fine. Yeah. All of these like tonal jumps around are fine. As far as the connection goes, though, I think both of these films are really pretty smart about using perception to give us a sense of like the larger world and the character's place in it without us ever having to actually go there. I, I think both of these films are structured really, really well to reflect what the outside world is doing at all times um, and how it affects these like very, very image obsessed characters. And you're right that like neither of these films spend a lot of time in that outside world. Like they're pretty mm -hmm. cloistered within the, in the case of the American president, the white house, you know, we get a couple scenes in Sidney Allen Wade's office and her sister's house, but for the most part, it's very, and even then it's still very much within this world of politics and in long shot we have a shay jackson jr's character you know as sort of the representative of that outside world and the problems that come with that aside you know it's just kind of indicative of how little we see of uh, outside of the political sphere that these two movies are operating in and so we have to rely on what we are told about the public perception within those spheres because we don't have the information the film doesn't give us that information itself. So we touched a little on style and the style of comedy and the style of romance in in um, in each film. But how about to you know, let's let's bring them together, which is what we do in this part of the podcast. Uh, how does comedy differ between these two, and how does the romance differ? I think the romance is interesting because in American President. It's very traditional. It's very conservative. Um, Michael Douglas's character. But well, hold on, hold on, hold on. They have intercourse outside of wedlock. Tasha. <laughs> Wait, what? That's not conservative I, at all. Oh my gosh, that's. I'm so embarrassed. I'm flushing now. <laughs> I thought it was just a sleepover. Did platonic he, sleepover. Did he flip her over and smack her ass really hard and then choke her a little bit? Because I don't remember that part. Uh, deleted scenes. I don't know. <laughs> 
as far as their relative positions, like he's always the initiator. He's very much a gentleman. Uh, she kind of like politely takes what she's given. There's a lot of uh, like sort of blushing and, uh, oh, you know, how flattering of him. Um, he's constantly trying to send her flowers. Uh, there's just something very old school about that romance. And, and Longshot really aggressively flips that switch in terms of where the power dynamic is. I mean, she's literally his boss uh, in terms of where the power dynamic is in the sack, where she's kind of his boss, even if she apologizes for it, in terms of how much more like driven and and focused and intelligent even uh, she is. And we see that at the end, especially where he's just like, my job is to defer to her and make her happy. That is a very untraditional view of movie romance. Well, and I think the big difference the big contrast in the romances here is one is public and one is private for the for the, the majority of the movie. You know, I mean, obviously President Shepard like wants to keep his relationship with Sidney Allen Wade private, but that is not the case from from their very first date. You know, but for most of Longshot, they are hi- hidden from from the public's view. You know, and the tension of their relationship is the threat of becoming public, whereas the tension in the relationship in the American president is that it is already public. I think also the circumstances of both of these couples, like first sexual interaction is like two opposite ends of the spectrum as far as how romance and sex are presented to us in film, whereas in the American president, like it's very actually now that i think about it, she's the initiator right like yeah, the she, shirt. yeah but but he's trying to do it like in a very traditional way you know making it a drink and taking it real slow you know and she's the one who has to you know push it along which is i think something that happens a lot in in romantic comedies and which i'm, I'm grateful for just in terms of establishing consent but in long shot i found it not funny i just found it notable i guess that it like goes to the trope, cliche, whatever you want to call it, of a near-death experience being what pushes our characters into the sack together, you know? And here it's a revolution in Manila, I think. Is that where they were? So I I think, like, these are both, like, very sort of traditional setups for the first sexual encounter, but very different at the same time. I think the the Manila revolution where we're stuck in a storeroom together thing is pretty ridiculous, but honestly, the idea of those two hooking up in the first place was so ridiculous, just in terms of he sees her as as incredibly out of his league. Uh, going back to their childhood, yeah. you know, she's years older, like leaving aside the fact that she's devastatingly attractive and, and brilliantly smart and blah, blah, blah. And the Secretary of State, like she has a power that he doesn't have. Uh, he just still sees her as that person and he doesn't see his attraction to her as remotely feasible whereas she presumably sees him as an employee like an employee that makes her laugh i the the film needed some kind of pretty extreme exaggerated circumstance to to, for for both of them uh to see that moment as acceptable because i think neither one of them would have been comfortable making the first move in the situation they were in this seems to be kind of a theme with you and your reaction to this film tasha and that you it seems sounds to me that you needed it to be completely insane and outrageous in order for it to be plausible at all. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, which is an interesting take. And it probably, you know, somewhat... Right, though, I think there are are actually more human ways in which they connect that are are not 
quite so outrageous that are a little more everyday or a little bit more rooted in who who they were as you know as teenagers and I do think that's now. true and I think it would have worked for the lead up uh but I think for the like the the initiation moment I think for the the jumping from sort of their childhood selves to uh, like a, a sexual relationship it it needed it needed a battery jump start like it needed something fairly extreme but I think you're exactly right and I think that's very insightful when this movie is at its most extreme, I am repeatedly reminded that it's a, a crazy comedy and it's okay for wacky stuff to happen that I don't entirely believe as long as I'm still laughing. And I did laugh a fair bit at this movie. And going back to the connection of styles of comedy, like that is not at all present in the American president, that sense of outrageousness. Like it does have some comedic elements, but it's all in the dialogue and the way these characters talk to each other. So it's elements of fantasy because they are centered in this more like quote unquote realistic context of you know not an outrageous comedy i think maybe ironically the fantasy elements feel more heightened in the american president than they do in long shot because of that maybe no no i i agree i mean <laughs> the fantasy elements in long shot are very very heightened but it, it's it's all part and parcel you know it's all consistently wacky whereas with american president the parts of it that feel fantasy-esque and and difficult to believe like don't have that plausibility that that excuse of well this is just a silly fantasy yeah i think it's interesting because so much of the american president has to be like can you believe this is what's happening <laughs> with the, the president is the president doing this whereas in long shot the gravity you think they would come with being secretary of state never really seems to touch her all that much except in that moment of crisis when she's called out um you know called away from the dance floor to, to deal with a hostage situation yeah yeah, the idea of, of the Secretary of State being allowed to spend three weeks out of the country pursuing a personal agenda is a little bizarre. Yeah, but also her president clearly doesn't Not care. <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> so, and, and thinks she's... <laughs> No, Secretary. it's upsetting to him when he finally yeah. figures out what's going on, but but uh, he's not paying attention at all to what she's doing. One of the other things that kind of strikes me, a connection between these two movies, is you know just how analogous the Benning and Rogan are in this, in terms of like respecting and understanding what the importance of their of their partner's job and and what they're trying to do, and and being willing to step back and be supportive of that etc but their other role there is to be that that element of conscious they're there to occasionally speak up and remind the powerful person of their of their ideals i mean i think that was like it, that was the thing when i was we were kind of banding about possible movies that we could do with long shot and that was like one of the elements when i was watching long shot it was like there can be no other thing we have to do the American <laughs> president because they just that you know on that and so many other levels they have so much in common i they have so much in common that watching the american president i found myself saying over and over did i not realize this is just a remake like yeah. the the like there's so many of the beats are exactly the same that it really feels like this is a stealth remake oh for sure hmm. i don't know if i agree with with that just because i think the and I, I agree that they are like extraordinarily similar movies but i wouldn't put that to so much like direct homage or remake on the part of Longshot as just both films very closely following both the arc and the characterizations of romantic comedy as a genre so so closely and them both being in the political realm and how you have to adjust those beats 
within a political realm in similar ways. But I mean, there's that scene in American President where Annette Benning ends up with semen all over her hair. <laughs> Another deleted scene. Yeah. I really should have bought the DVD and gotten the extras. Oh, wait, no, I'm thinking about something about Mary. Sorry. I it, was, it, was a more, it was a more elegant era. <laughs> Well, while we're talking about the direct one-to-one comparisons, uh, both films take the environment as as their uh, major issue, which I found kind of depressing. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, just just how you know how little any sort of push in the '90s has resulted in substantive change. Twenty uh, some years later, uh, which got me thinking about how uh, things are actually much worse. Uh, because of our current president, but where where is it going with this? I mean, you know, uh, yeah, it'd be a twenty percent reduction, whatever that's supposed to mean. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, back in the back in the, ni- back in the nineties, if you, we we if such such ambitious yes. environmental legislation had passed, then maybe we wouldn't be in the predicament we're in now. Is it Sydney who has the line of, of something like in in ten years the internal combustion engine is going to be obsolete? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but I, I think in terms of like both of these films, environmental packages, they both engage with the idea of half measures not being acceptable. You know, and in in the case of the American president, is very explicitly a half measure, a decrease from 20% to 10%, you know, emissions. And in the long shot, it's, you know, getting rid of the trees part of the package. And then... <laughs> what about uh, the sea? The yeah, sea the, the, the sea from the, the agreement. Yeah, I don't even like bees. Yeah. Oh, bees, right? <laughs> yeah. So, like, there's the idea that, that once you start trying to address environmental problems like piecemeal, it just falls apart because it's such a holistic thing. You know, it's an ecosystem, you might say. So the idea that you can just kind of set aside one part of a of a plan to fix, quote unquote, the environment and still have it work, like the idea that that is not acceptable, holds true in both films and I think is kind of insightful and yes, depressing. <laughs> I think it's interesting that both films effectively use the environment and environmental issues uh, as a shorthand for political issue that is adult and like and grown up to be like dealing with. It's it's idealistic, but it's also something that we're we're virtue signaling. We're we're very specifically signaling that the the protagonists of both of these movies uh, are really principled people because they care about this thing hard enough to fight for it, even though like the rest of the country is super lazy and indifferent to it and it's presented as this is so important that we need to spend all of the political capital if necessary this is so important that we need to focus our time and attention on which makes us essentially more grown up than anybody else in the room because there's just that assumption that everybody else is going to talk the talk but not actually do anything about it i think the environment is also just a good rom-com issue i mean what is the environment but a you know about verdancy and and hmm. you know flowers blooming and all of these things that you associate with love. I mean, you don't really get that with you know military spending or something <laughs> like that, or gun control. Gun control, right? I mean, so so in, in long shot, you get the scene with the Northern Lights. I mean, and oh, yeah. uh, and uh, so there's so there's that backdrop too that it, that you kind of associate a healthy environment with growth and with blooming and with you know uh, the, you know a future <laughs> and with love. <laughs> so in that sense, you know. It's it's a good issue for a rom com. So when we talked about the American president, we talked about how it would be difficult to see such a, a comedy with such with such a, a fixed point of view on politics 
be getting a wide release now. This is a wide release movie, and it's definitely coming from a certain particular point of view, but I think it kind of hedges its bets with that um, O'Shea Jackson Jr. scene we talked about. Where do you see the politics of this film lining up with the politics of the American president? I think both films take a pretty hardline stance against right-wing people in general. And the fact that... O'Shea Jackson's uh, like big crossing the aisle moment literally consists of him saying, I'm a Republican. That means I'm into self-made men and like has literally nothing else to say about Republican policies. Other than it's made him really rich, I think. I feel, I feel, you know, he's he's the he's the boss, and so he makes a lot of money, and presumably wants to pay less taxes. And, and he's, he's religious; got... he wears the cross. But yeah, right. all of those are good points that the movie does not bring up. Like he, he when he says, "Bring up that stuff." She talks about she just said the whole religious <laughs> thing in the house. And he talks yeah, about... he says he's religious, but he he makes the point. He's like, you know, I'm Republican. You didn't realize it, and you've judged me. That's like a, that's a bad thing. And Seth Rowan's like, you can't be Republican. And he doesn't bring up the fact that he's a small business owner. He doesn't bring up the fact that he wants lower taxes. He doesn't bring up like any of the kind of classic conservatism causes that would make sense for him to espouse. He's like, I'm in a self-made man. And that's that's literally it. And I'm like, so you're not going to engage with, for instance, like everything that's going on right now in terms of the Republican Party and like, well, in this, in this world, in this world, a Democrat is in in the White House. I assume yeah. he is. I mean, she's a Democrat and she's his secretary of state. Sure. So, you know, I think like the Democrat Republican divide gets very blurry in this in this movie while in no way suggesting that they are not like a liberal party is not the party in power within this movie, but like the O'Shea Jackson thing, but then also the Andy Serkis character and like this media mogul who seems to be like presented as a, you know, right wing monster, but is also buying up a hyper liberal paper and is palling around with a democratic president, which I'm not, saying to suggest he is not a a right-wing character but it just like blurs the lines of separation through that character a bit oh i don't think that's true i mean we're we're openly told that he bought up the advocate in order to ruin it the way he's bought up and ruined so many other small la weekly all over again right yeah he's he's just he's pretty much he's already in the process of gutting it uh in terms of like cutting all the staff and Mm -hmm. seth rowan's character like openly says like he's he's gonna switch he's gonna make a stop and he runs this Fox News esque network network too, you know, you know that's... which which we see repeated uh, evidence. <laughs> this, this, this at one point there's what the the like little four split of like here's what every other uh, network is doing, and, yeah. and here's what our faux Fox network yeah. is doing. Right. I mean, yeah, he's he's putting out horrible propaganda, and I the only reason he's palling around with the Democratic president is for power. Yeah. And he's blackmailing him in order to get his way on his own environmental issues, like yeah. get his server farm in Alaska. See, I don't, I don't think any of that's muddy. I think it's cartoonish. Yeah, I think in some ways, American President is a slightly edgier film here because it is take take a firm point of view. It does not have anything equivalent of saying, uh, no, the equivalent is of it's okay to be. A Republican. I think that scene shuts down if he says, I'm a Republican, and it's like, and I believe if I'm building a big wall along the southern border and arming teachers. <laughs> you know, this is, uh, uh, again, it's not necessarily a film from the moment we're, we're in right now. No, it's not. It's just there are convincing things that the film could have done. I, like, no matter how much Longshot wanted to shorthand the idea of, of black conservatives, 
like literally two sentences of like inherent policies I believe in would have made that entire conversation way more convincing than it was. As it is, I really don't understand why it's there. Mostly so uh, Seth Rogen can have a big mea culpa, everything I do is wrong. I, I, I need to be more woke. Uh, kind of awakening yeah. that, again, doesn't really make much sense. So we should wind things down. But before we wind things down, let's, let's make one more connection, which is both these films end with a big speech or like climax with a, with a big speech. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Climax kind of is really I don't know that Charlie Theron's big uh, moment works here. No. It's a, it's a fine sentiment, but you don't necessarily see people buying it. I didn't anyway. No, no. No way. And I think like what maybe makes it feel not authentic uh is that it's off the cuff she changes direction mid-speech you know and she just throws it all out the window and starts whereas in the american president like he comes into this press conference specifically intending to give this speech you know it is it is set up that this is what he's going to say and in the long shot it's presented as you know what i can't do this anymore here's how i really feel which is just a a very trite way to resolve a, a movie i feel and the, and the the worst of it is is that it she suffers no consequences at all and she becomes president afterwards. That just that's annoying to me. I just I, again yeah. it's that idea of just like there's a reason why politicians act like politicians and, and to pursue this fantasy where they where they go way way outside of that and suffered no damages and no political consequences whatsoever. Just it's, just, it's infuriating because it's just not it's removed from reality and even even uh, <laughs> even in the reality of long shot the, the well, it doesn't it doesn't work for me. And because it's a film that spends so much of its energy like exploring the ideas of perception, that ending is basically saying like, oh, actually none of that was real. That's not really how people would have reacted. This is how they'll react. They'll actually like it. They'll think it's yeah. cute. They'll elect her, you know? Yeah. So it just kind of undoes all the interesting things it was doing. There's the tiniest thing here that might be relevant, which is that there is a desire and maybe a political, you know, plus now of for politicians to do to act like human beings to act just like mm. regular yeah. people it's very appealing it was a big part of obama's appeal is, is a big part in a way of trump's appeal of just like not every thing out of your mouth has to be completely market tested just be a just be a person and that's in the and maybe you know people are going to find that relatable and be able to look past the flaws in in, in that that approach or the flaws that you have as a, as a, as a person I that's maybe just the tiny little justification I might have for that I think it's also pretty relevant that we see the immediate aftermath of the come guy video as they put it mm. uh, but we don't have to see any of the the actual election trail we don't have to see the backlash against him we don't have to see <sighs> the jokes that he no doubt endures every day for the rest of his life the late night monologue montage the late night oh, monologue the montage Leno, the right? headlines bring, Jay, bring, the like, bring Jay Leno back from retirement for that <laughs> video remixes and the memes like you just know all of that stuff is out there what you see at the end is like a very very curated like bit of their life uh, which makes it I think more plausible to me than if they'd tried to do a like four years later like here's how everything came out for them kind of thing I see what you're saying about it being completely unrealistic ridiculous not engaging with reality <laughs> It may be the only ending that I would have accepted, though. I just wanted so hard for this not to be a movie about a woman giving up on everything she believes in for the sake of a very schlubby dude. Yeah. And that very schlubby yeah, dude that, is that, Seth that Rogen. That would have been a bad ending. This is an unsatisfying ending, but it's not necessarily an awful ending, but that would be... Uh, a betrayal of everything that's come before. Speaking <laughs> of, she could take she could take a noble position uh, as an environmental lobbyist. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring it full circle back to the American. Meet the president. new president and end up in a way better relationship. So speaking of thing, bringing things full circle, I think we're going to wrap this segment up. The American President is available on DVD and Blu-ray. It can be rented through all the usual digital rental sites, and it's probably on you know TNT this weekend or something. Uh, also, it's, it's currently on HBO Go. Uh, Long Shot is currently in theaters, and we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I'm not watching a lot of films lately. I'm really not doing anything with my life except watching Game of Thrones, writing about Game of Thrones, and <laughs> editing people who write about Game of Thrones and or Avengers Endgame. So Hit me. <laughs> I know, right? So I'm going to punt uh, back a little ways in time. I cannot see Charlize Theron on screen without thinking about her amazing, amazing performance in Jason Reitman's Young Adult, um, which came out in 2011 and is about a character that she plays who is a uh, a very successful and yet pretty unknown writer, um, ghostwriter for uh, ghostwriter of children's books, I believe. I think they're like a Sweet Valley High-esque, uh, yeah, so like young adult type Her of name thing. isn't yeah. exactly on them. Um, who is an alcoholic living a very unhappy lifestyle. And uh, she goes back to her small town in order to kind of reconnect with uh, her old boyfriend, played by Patrick Wilson. Uh, and he is married and has a child. And she does not care because she is an unbelievably almost cartoonishly selfish woman and she starts trying to interfere in his relationship and his life this movie the first time i saw it i kind of hated it uh i thought it was like bitter and and weird and just unexpected and going off in a lot of directions i i had no idea what it was doing and i couldn't tell you why i watched it again maybe i was curious maybe it was for an assignment but the second time through i loved this movie like with a, a deep and passionate love I feel like it is very consciously making fun of an entire genre of extremely sentimental films about people who people who are living bad lives in the big city. Your your Elizabeth Town cycle of movies, uh, somebody who is given themselves over to some form of, of greed or ambition or exhaustion and has realized they need to disconnect. So they go back to their hometown and find like a slower set, like more satisfying way of life and eventually love. This movie is sending up all of that. It's uh, scripted by Diablo Cody and it's got uh, some of that like acerbic cleverness to it. Um, but I really think that this may be the, the best thing she's ever written. It's just so emotionally intelligent and it's so dark uh, and so uncompromising about all the things it lets Shirley Throne's character get away with. And ultimately it ends up being this very firm statement about how some people are awful people. But along the way, it finds some really interesting things in her relationship with Patton Oswalt. If you want to talk about uh, Shirley's throne and schlubby dudes, like this mm-hmm. is another one of those movies. But it also kind of subverts that dynamic. He is really good in this movie. He's, he's sensitive and smart and relatable, uh, but also just a very, very sad figure. 
I love the dynamic between them. I love the ambitions that this movie has, but mostly I love just how uncompromisingly weird and strange and dark and specific it is. So Jason Reitman's young adult. Yeah, I second that. Yeah, I love good. that movie. Good movie. Yeah. That, that was a that was a very memorable. Uh, did you did you, were you, all you at the screening that, that uh, they did the music box? Uh, yeah, we got was, I got a poster that hung in my uh, uh, house for like, quite a while. Yeah, that was it was the best Q and I have I've ever seen because of Pat Oswalt was up there for. 40 minutes or so kind of taking all the most asinine audience questions and then <laughs> ma- turning it into instant comedy. It was terrific. That sounds amazing. But uh, every I, I thought everybody in this room except me usually fled the theater the second it looked like a Q&A was going to happen. Yeah, but that's specific. You know, you, you had a sense that that could be possible and it was. I think we stayed for Patton. Yep. No, that's fair. I wasn't there for that one and I wish I was. Scott, what's uh, what's been good for you lately? Um, you know, I also haven't been able to, I've been doing a lot of uh, television stuff. I'm working on this epic list for <laughs> Vulture on uh, HBO wow. movies that's just... HBO series. HBO series, <laughs> excuse me. Oh my gosh, what, about, what, what are we doing? Uh, no, I, I, but HBO series, that is going to be substantial and, and uh, will kill me at the end of it, but... Um, I had occasion to kind of look through of a lot of Jack Nicholson films for another project, and I kind of want to do what you just did and and take a film that I didn't really uh, respond to that much at first, and you know offer a real valuation for it, and that is oh 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 I know the bucket list. <laughs> no, no, the bucket list I think is properly rated. I want to kind of make a case for how do you know uh, the um, James L. Brooks film that uh, he did in 2010 which may end up being jack nicholson's last movie he is a he is a supporting role in it he's a, the leads of the film are reese witherspoon and uh, paul rudd and it's just it's one of those movies that is just it's you the uh, james l brooks is not really the type of guy who's going to give you some big um easy digestible you know hook and in this movie doesn't have it doesn't have it at all it really is just about um characters who are um at a crossroads in their life kind of coming together Reese Witherspoon plays an olympic uh softball champion who is past her prime and uh and and is you know doesn't really know what to do next in her life and she ends up meeting Paul Rudd who is Jack Nicholson's son is but who's being set up as basically the fall guy in some corporate uh, scandal that could land him in jail, and uh, and so they just kind of find each other in this in this very uncertain and troubling place in their lives, and have have interesting conversations. And then, yeah, Reese Witherspoon also has a, has a relationship with kind of a, a Derek Jeter like baseball player played by uh, Owen Wilson, and they have kind of an interesting thing. It's just one of those movies that if that James L. Brooks, because he's James L. Brooks, can just write the hell out of it, no matter what. It doesn't have to be neat it doesn't have to be hooky you can just have this sort of like collection of kind of screwed up people and uh have them come together in a fairly moving way and and i think i think i was a little bit thrown off by how uh, ill-defined it was i guess when i saw it at first and and uh but this time i saw it and really grooved on it and was quite charmed and, and moved by it and really like you know kind of missed you know, a, a movie of this kind even existing. So uh, I kind of think it's worth a, a, a look back. Uh, how do you know? Hmm. I 
don't know why I had no idea this movie existed, but I'm very intrigued because this is nobody saw. Yeah, it. I, this, I haven't heard of it either. This is a whole lot of people. Yeah, I, I mean, like the reviews were. It's got a 46 on Metacritic. Um, I mean, it had yeah, it had some know? very strong was, defenders of the time. Our friend Mike D'Angelo was a big fan, and so there's some other folks who were who are very str- who are really into James L. Brooks or who are who defended the film quite strongly at the time. But uh, those folks are right, in my opinion. I, and it, it's also. A- hugely expensive movie given that it's just a bunch of people moping around new york uh for two hours it's it's part of why i think you can can uh, we haven't gotten a lot of rom-coms huh. i mean it's certainly are you saying this is a film that, that killed that, the rom-com Keith? i don't know if it killed the rom-com but it didn't help anything i don't know i i watched the movie recently too scott i think i'd like it better if it wasn't a huge mess but the charming parts are, yeah, are charming it's, it's too, not like, that much know. of a mess is what i'm saying but uh, what about you, Keith? Um, I have seen a, uh, I read a film for Tasha at The Verge called Shadow by Zhang Yamu. Uh, Yamu, of course, is, is the uh, Chinese director who's done everything from Hero to uh, uh, Judo to Raise the Red Lantern to House of Flying Dra- Daggers. And this is kind of brings together a couple of different phases of, of his career. Uh, it is in many ways an, an intense personal drama about people who are thrown into close quarters and who probably uh, are not, it's not healthy for them to be that, that uh, the, the, the shadow of the title refers to a, uh, a it's set in the three kingdoms era of Chinese history. It was like, I think the third century, second century, uh, write your angry letters to somebody else. And um, <laughs> don't at me. It, the shadow of the title is a, is a sort of a lowborn uh, person who has been uh, raised since birth to be a double for a uh, Chinese general uh, who can can you know for for various purposes. It's always good to have a, a doppelganger of yourself. I've, <laughs> I I certainly have discovered in, in my life. But anyway, the, the plot gets very complex. But there's there's a lot of uh, tension between the 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 general and and his uh, doppelganger and his wife, and then the actual ruler of one of the kingdoms who has. A very um, a policy that the general does not agree with. Uh, so there's, you know, the, like I said, very uh, tight drama. But the other half of it, is, it speaks to his uh, what he's done more recently in his career, more often than not, which is these huge action spectacles. Um, and there, the action scenes are amazing. And I kind of don't even want to spoil them. The look of the film is like nothing else. It is a shot in color, but it's so desaturated, and the sets. And the costumes and everything except for these these the skin tones and like so these bursts of green and the forest scenes and of course in the end a lot of blood uh, it's black and white I mean it's just it's stylized in this really beautiful striking way uh, again it's it's not like anything else you'll see in, anytime soon um, I'd recommend seeing the theater I didn't unfortunately I'd like to go see it again but it is, it is a screen filling action spectacle with a lot of uh, uh, pageantry and uh, you know drama to it. I had not I kind of fallen out of um, I, I missed his last few films. I caught up with The Great Wall which was his big, his stab to do like sort of a big Hollywood backed blockbuster which I find you know charming and 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 uh, interesting in, in ways that it was a lot of people did not I guess it's it's the uh, it's my how do you know uh, yes yeah, no, I was mine too I, I thought it was one hugely underrated yeah uh, hugely underrated maybe it's, yeah it's, it's underrated uh, but this is a, a big step up from that and and uh, I, I'd say uh, check it out yeah it's really striking I I saw it when I was about half out of my mind on sleep Dep at a festival um, and it'll tell you how exhausted I was that I don't actually remember whether that was tiff or something dance or something else 
But when you're in that film festival state of uh, half asleep, half delirious, and you're watching a film that feels like a, a nightmare dream in itself, uh, it was it was just such a striking and strange experience because everything going on on the screen feels like something you've seen before, but not looking like this, not necessarily feeling like this. And I, I'm right with you and not wanting to spoil uh, anything about the fight sequences, but this film does things with umbrellas that you're just not going to see in any other movie. It's it's pretty impressive. Genevieve, how about you? Well, as we are recording this, it is a few days after the first Monday in May, <laughs> also known as the day that the Metropolitan Museum of Art opens its annual costume exhibit uh, with an attendant uh, celebrity festooned gala uh, that is the red carpet event of the year. And in, in at least in my corner of the internet, this year's uh, Met Gala has been all anyone has been talking about for the past few days. Uh, its theme this year was camp, notes on fashion, inspired by the Susan Sontag uh, essay. And uh, there's just been a whole lot of discussion of uh, all, all the various looks that were on the red carpet and the attendance sort of you know, skepticism about like, what is this event? Why are they, why, why, why are we paying attention to this? What is happening? Uh, and I had one of those conversations with my fiance and in the process I asked him, do you like know what the Met Gala is? Like, do you know why all these people are here, you know, doing this? And he's like, it's like a party. <laughs> I was like, well, yes, but it's attached to this museum exhibit. And this is like a huge fundraiser for the, for the Met. And I was like, I have a movie for you. And that movie is The First Monday in May, a 2016 documentary directed by Andrew Rossi. It is on Netflix. Have you, have any of you seen no. The First Monday in May? No. Oh, it's a, it's it's really good. It's ostensibly a process documentary following the creation of the Met's annual fashion exhibition from conception through that opening night gala. Uh, and it certainly is that uh, Rossi was given a lot of access, both from the Met and to Anna Wintour, the editor of Vogue and chair of the gala, as well as the namesake of the Costume Center at the Met. Uh, but it also ends up being something much more than that, in large part due to the theme the Costume Institute chose for 2015 when this was filmed. And that theme was, quote, China through the looking glass i.e. an exploration of how Western designers were inspired by and incorporated Chinese history and culture into their own work. Uh, as you might imagine, that opens the door to a lot of sticky conversations about the line between interpretation and appropriation and how they function in the realm of art. And I think if you buy into the idea that fashion is, or at least can be art, which is something else the documentary tackles, uh, there are a lot of really interesting ideas percolating in this documentary around the intersection of art, commerce, and inspiration slash appropriation. There are some particularly revealing moments involving the director Wong Kar Wai, who served as artistic director for the exhibition and has some great moments of pushback against the vision of the Costume Institute's director, uh, and also involving the museum's Asian American art wing, which co-produced the exhibit and seems very uncomfortable throughout with the exhibit's merging of quote-unquote fine art and fashion, which is subjugated to the realm of quote applied art. Uh, there's also, needless to say, a lot of really, really beautiful, even breathtaking fashion on display here that I think makes it a lot easier to contextualize these conversations in the realm of fine art. And then it all comes to this very weird climax involving the opening night gala and the influx of celebrity and money into the proceedings, uh, because the Met Gala is at heart a fundraiser that the year this uh, movie was filmed raised over $12 million for the museum. Uh, and there's just this weird clash that happens there, perhaps best illustrated in a shot of Justin Bieber grinning and flashing a peace sign in front of a display of Mao jackets and related artworks. <laughs> uh, 
admittedly, the film mostly presents these ideas and lets the viewer unpack them. Uh, ultimately, it takes a pretty credulous, maybe even admiring view of its subject rather than interrogating the relative value or legitimacy of an undertaking like this exhibition and gala. But I think even if you're a fashion as art skeptic, you will come away with a greater understanding of what's behind this annual red carpet spectacle, and you'll get to see some very beautiful gowns in the process. So the first Monday in May, it's uh, readily available on Netflix. It's a short 90-minute, very digestible documentary that will leave you with some things to, to chew over. And this, there's, there's some Wong Kar Wai in it? There is a good amount of Wong Kar Wai. Sun, he's sunglasses really... always? Yep, yep. That's so cool. Yep. Oh my goodness. He, he is actually, uh, he is responsible for maybe my favorite scene in the movie where he basically tells the guy conceiving of the of the exhibit who wants to like combine Mao and Buddha in the same like room of the exhibit because it would be like controversial and Wong Kar Wai's like uh no you can't do that <laughs> don't do that and they didn't do it so good job Wong Kar Wai <laughs> go Wong Kar Wai <laughs> so, so and also really quickly uh, uh favorite least favorite looks this year Matt, Matt, Matt Yala oh um I really like Casey Musgraves uh, Moschino Barbie doll whole whole thing that was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll stick with that. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pair will come out May 28th and June 4th. Genevieve, what's coming up next? The new film, John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, kicks off where Chapter 2 left off, with Keanu Reeves' assassin having just committed an unsanctioned killing at the Continental Hotel, which is supposed to be a safe haven for assassins. As punishment for this transgression, the high table labels him excommunicado and declares open season on him with a bounty of $14 million. So that sends John Wick dashing through the streets of Manhattan as various packs of colorful henchmen confront him along the way. John Wick's journey reminded us of Walter Hill's 1979 cult classic The Warriors, in which a Coney Island street gang is falsely accused of murdering the charismatic leader of the most powerful gang in New York and has to make its way back home. As they do, they're also confronted by colorful henchmen like the Baseball Furies who wear Yankee pinstripes and chase after them with bats, or the Boppers, a Harlem gang decked out in black fedoras and hot purple vests. On the next two episodes of The Next Picture Show, we'll look at The Warriors and John Wick 3, both pulp action films that pit isolated protagonists against a world full of stylish attackers. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Longshot, The American President, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? Uh, I am the WDTV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? I am the film and TV editor at TheVerge.com, where you can read all that stuff about Game of Thrones and Endgame. It's been <laughs> headaching me for weeks now. And I am on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at NPR, uh, Variety, New York Times. Uh, I have a I have a piece that surely has set the internet aflame on uh, The Phantom Menace at its 20th anniversary that's in the New York Times. And then I have a, a big list that may have uh, dropped on, on Vulture as well uh, on HBO's uh, series. So look for those. And Keith, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000. Uh, I'm freelancing a bunch of different places these days, including Vulture, The Verge, Polygon, uh, TV Guide. Yeah, you can, I click my clips at KeithFIPS.com if you want to read them there. 
And you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing the podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Uh-huh.